Hi, this is Time Capsule, episode 395. I'm Tony Tolato. This is Sci-Fi Talk, the podcast on how sci-fi, fantasy, horror, and comics help us explore our humanity. And we look back on some of the archive episodes of Time Capsule, my magazine-style interview show. Let's begin with composer from Being Human, F.M. LeFleur, who talks about writing themes for the characters, and we'll hear one of the themes he composed. I really want to push was the friendship. I think the friendship was the big thing between those three characters. Absolutely. And more, more, and that's part of what you say about the humanity, about the, uh, I think to deal at, it's not about the monster, it's more the monster who really want to be human. And I thought that was something I had to find something with the friendship and something also more, uh, earthy. May I say that? Earthy, you know, yeah. grounded. I mean, occasionally you do get a chance to get a little creepy with the music too, which is fun. Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> And that is fun, too. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, did you ever think about, um, I mean, I, 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 I honestly can't remember if you do or not, but is there a, uh, a theme for each person, or do you just have a general theme for the three of them? Well, I really started with Aiden. Aiden was really my, I don't know, I think because probably when I, you know, I, I got this show, one of the first uh, part of script I read was about Aiden. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I really started with Aiden, and I, I really tried to give a, an edge to the character and uh, same thing, something very simple and urban. So I, I use electric bass. Oh, good. And, you know, and I, I use two basses, one of two octaves to have something more like a, a, a bit, I wouldn't say 80s revival, but something like The Cure, something got. Oh, yeah, yeah. At the same thing, at the same time, something very, uh, with a, a certain kind of melancholia. So I really start with him like this. That was my first theme.
some more time capsules, so stay tuned. That was from episode number 92. Going back even further to episode 42, here is Vincent D'Onofrio on his film, Don't Go Into the Woods. My filmmaker spotlight today has Vincent D'Onofrio, who is known for his breakout role as Private Leonard Gomer Pyle Lawrence in Stanley Kubrick's Full Metal Jacket. And for 11 years, he was Detective Robert Gorin on Law & Order Criminal Intent. He has directed his first film, Don't Go Into the Woods, about an aspiring band. They take a road trip and they go out to a secluded area of the woods just to work on their music, but they certainly end up getting more than they bargained for. I spoke to the new director along with some fellow reporters. I'll be asking all the questions just to make it easier. Why was this film done as a horror film? I've always liked horror films uh, since I was a kid. I mean, it, you know, I like them that they're, you, you can make, you know, anything you want and it's, it's never really taken very seriously, but it's also, but it's taken seriously in like an, as entertainment value. And it's not critiqued in the way other films are, like comedies or drama, dramas, or, or even sci-fi, you know. I think horror has this kind of way of, uh, you know, you have to have take the leap, you know, with it whenever you watch them because they're naturally just, in the end, absurd, you know? Most of them, I would say, 99% of them. And so that, it was interesting. I mean, ours was just a, started out as a kind of experiment just to see if we could get away with it. You know, we shot it for 100 grand, all in, even in post and everything. And then we shot it in 12 days. And it was, you, you know, we did it without a casting director and I thought of the idea, and then two months later, we were shooting it in my yard in upstate New York. Yeah. I think what appeals to me is the integration of the music into the, into, and, and the way you did it wasn't that, um, you know, like, somebody's not just going to burst out into song. It's, it's the band kind of finding themselves, and then, yeah. and is it also, uh, for those that haven't seen it, is it also kind of add to the tension of the film, especially some of the songs? That well, it's interesting you say that, because, you know, in horror, you have to, you have to keep tension. And, you know, in a musical, every time you sing, it releases tension. You know, so it's difficult thing to, uh, it's difficult to keep, uh, as I've learned now, that it's difficult to keep the tension up in a, in a musical horror <laughs> film. But I guess there's ways of doing it. You know, there, there are first, I would say, four reels are kind of even, I kind of keep the, tension pretty even and then the fifth wheel it gets really uh, the tension gets really high which a lot is taken from a film called High, uh, high Tension uh, this film in uh, this French horror film which I really love I loved when it came out anyway yeah I mean it's a, it's a it's, you know you have to remember that a lot of it is very kind of uh, Don't Go in the Woods is is an absurd movie it's it's it makes no sense and it, it, it's just everybody sings and everybody dies. I mean, that was the initial idea, you know. So it, it is what it, it is. What it is in, in that way. I, and you know, it's it's geared towards a college kind of audience. And and before Tribeca got involved with it, before they expressed interest in it, you know, I was traveling around colleges uh, showing it for the hell of it. And the you know the college audiences just went nuts over it. So you know it's it's it was made for them. 
There's a theory that when it comes to horror, you don't need a big star because horror is the star of the movie. Do you agree with that? I do. I do. I, I think that, uh, I, you know, it, these days, you know, being an actor, you know, you watch movies and there's very little acting going on in films. And it's kind of nice, you know. I mean, I, that's the one thing about horror movies is that there's this non-acting going on. I mean, you could say that it's bad acting, but then that puts like a negative connotation on it, you know. And I don't think it deserves that. It's a... Unless it's blatantly uh, campy and bad, you know, then there's that, there's that. But it's more of this kind of very kind of simplistic, naturalistic, almost kind of slacker acting, you know, that that, that happens in it. Like the old... Um, Linkletter and, and Smith films, and um, and that's what I wanted to, to do in Don't Go in the Woods. You know, I, I'm interested in that kind of thing. I've been a, I've been a, a character actor all you know most of my life, and I, I find it, it fascinating this other style of acting. You know, this kind of flat, naturalistic style. You know, I've never been one of those kinds of actors, and I, I find it really interesting. You know, it's almost, uh, it requires almost no effort. And I think in, in this day and age, it's, um, it fits, because so little things require effort, yeah. And, and so, um, it's not like when I was a kid, when every actor or actress you met, they wanted to be, you know, what, like, you know, an incredible actor, you know, like, a, technical technically incredible actor and that's the the generation that I come from so it's very different from my generation but it's very it's I find it really legitimate and entertaining to watch yeah as far as the, the cast I mean you literally would cast people off the street in some of the cases yeah some of them are my, my nephew's friends and and uh, some some of the girls worked um, even the art director worked around the corner in a coffee shop from my house now, was there? Did you have any rehearsal time with them, or did no. you want to keep it spontaneous? We had a couple of read-throughs, and in those read-throughs, I would try. I, I didn't want to make them nervous. I, I, I would introduce the read-throughs. Like I would start the read-throughs with a little discussion about how I felt about what I expected from them, and and ask them to put their trust in me because I had been doing it a long time, and then I, I promised I wouldn't make them look like idiots. And as long as they understood the context, you know, that some of it is, uh, some, sometimes they're gonna feel completely absurd and that's the right feeling for this kind of film. And, and I would set it, and I, I, by reading some of the songs, like I would read the dialogue to some of the songs and to let them see me do it in a very kind of flat way without any effort so that when they started to read, they didn't start to act. So one thing I asked was for them not to act, you know? And the boys were like perfect at that. And so were some of the girls. There are a couple of girls in it that are naturally, um, their personalities as people are, are a little bit flashier than the other kids. And so, but they were also being natural, just comes across more, more flashy. But that's, that's the only, type of rehearsals that we had on we didn't have any time to rehearse we just shot scene after scene after scene after scene what are the basic elements that turn a horror film into a classic and how important is it for you to take risks in anything you do acting writing painting singing writing music it's all a risk everything should be a risk all the time right i think it's very important 
in, in, in this kind of thing where it hasn't really been done before, there's been like rock operas, uh, horror operas and stuff, you know, like, like Repo Man and, and, and the, you know, the, and um, Rocky Horror, of course. I mean, those are, you know, just, just also absurd films. And, you know, some of the music in those films is just, you know, just terrible. But at the same time, you just have to appreciate every moment of it. You know, like Repo Man. I mean, it's obvious to talk about Rocky Horror because it's such a classic. You know, Repo Man is, is just, it's like fingernails across a, you know, blackboard sometimes. But there's something about it that you're just totally attracted to. It's so awesome in that way. And I know that they're going to make another one, too. But our film is, is, it's not Meet Me in St. Louis or anything, but it's, it's, it's more of a, uh, the, the songs are more, have more melody to them. They're actually composed really well. Um, there's some really intense lyrics in our music that Sam wrote. I mean, Sam's an incredible musician and, and composer. I mean, the music stands alone in the film, you know, it really does, and uh, as almost an album. But, you know, every day you go on set, you're taking risks, and, and, and in this particular film, you don't, we never knew if it was really going to work, you know. I knew that, I, I, knew that we, I knew that if we just didn't wink, we didn't, you know, wink ever at the audience, and that we just played it in this kind of real absurd way, like just, this is what it is, believe it or not, take the leap, hate it, like it, we don't care, that kind of attitude, that it was going to work on a, on a certain level, it would work. And um, that's a huge risk, you know, it's, I mean, I personally don't think it's a risk because I've done so many bizarre things in my career that some people just really hated and some people love. I mean, even the television show that I did for 10 years, some people hated that character that I played so much and, and then other people just, you know, we're so disappointed when, when I stopped doing it, you know, so it, it's all a risk in a way, but I don't think it's like, you know, obviously it's not do or die or anything. I think visually there's some shots that really just jumped out at me, like when the girls kind of crashed the boys' you know, songwriting and the mask and the flashlights. It's very, one of those like horror film moments. Uh, yeah. That, that was out of left field. And even, you know, the killer itself, you never, he wears a mask. You're not sure of his outfit. Is he Amish? What, what is he exactly? I mean, there's a lot of vagueness going on, but obviously that's all intentional. Right. So a lot of planning obviously went into those moments. Or? I drew a picture of him. I always had a picture with the, the short top hat, the riding hat, and the, the, uh, there's a name for that hat. And uh, I always had a picture of him in, in black and with no face. And yeah, it's totally meant to raise questions of what exactly is he who is he does he really exist i mean is he is he nick storm's alter ego i mean what is he and i think that if we make a another one which i think we might do i think um i think tripeca wants to make another one of those and if that actually happens i think it'll be more clear to a certain extent not completely about why that thing comes around, why that, that monster comes around. So yeah, there are moments, there are like kind of like horror film moments that have certainly been done a million times and in no way are we being <laughs> unique in any way other than the fact that um, uh, we brought a bunch of girls into the woods to, um, to sing and die. Yeah, I mean, that's the only thing that we're unique about. To use a Kubrick analogy, that was an eyes wide shut moment for me. It was really, uh, I like Yeah, it's a bit weird and a bit hokey at the same time. And yeah. it, 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 I think it, it worked, you know? Yeah. 
Yeah. It was questionable whether it would or not. What was the process like to find the right ending for this film? So we, I always knew what the ending would, would be, always. I mean, it's, it's, it's something that Sam and I had discussed. I mean, Sam once told me when I first met him many years ago that the first thing a manager, um, if you're a good songwriter and, and you're the front man of a band, the first thing uh, a manager or a company says to you when they, when they think you're going to make money for them is, um, you know, you really should get rid of your band. And so that's, that last moment, uh, it was always going to happen, yeah. And I think that the, the I love this, the cerebral, the, my favorite thing about Dunko in the Woods is the cerebral aspect of the whole thing. To get, to, on top of doing a, you know, it's such a weird little film, on top of doing this kind of musical, everybody sings, everybody dies thing, there's this cerebral part of it, which is very different more, more, more like high tension, kind of a cerebral part of it. But we actually put voiceover on our, our lead where you get to get into his head a, a tiny little bit sometimes. And at the end he says, uh, you know, he, he, he looks right at the audience, says, you know, get ready, you know, for my fame, you know, get ready for the outcome of everything you've seen. I, I like that. And that's, that's very true to life. I mean, if you're in my position in life, and you've met actors and entertainers, dancers and musicians and poets and artists of all kinds. Uh, some of them would, uh, some of them, you know, are, are, are literally very close to uh, killing to be famous. They, they would do anything to be famous. And, and then once they are, they take on this power, this kind of self-absorbed self kind of power. It's, it's, you know, it's, it's really uh, sad to see. And, you know, they really think in their head, you know, get ready, here I come, everybody. You know, this is me, I'm famous. This is going to be it for everybody. I'm going to change the world. You know, and, in the, and the reality is they're just another either good artist or bad artist or artist, you know. As far as uh, shooting, to, uh, was this shot uh, digitally or do you... Yeah, we used the old... Uh, the, the, the first uh, Panasonics that came out that, would, that had the P2 cards that you could just dump... Uh, into the hard drive and put them back in the camera. So we were able to shoot continuously all day long. We had two cameras. I had um, my favorite Steadicam, Steadicam guy, and uh, mostly it was on sticks and, and with uh, Steadicam. No dolly stuff. Do you think there's some horror films that are meant to be seen on a large screen with a large audience? You know, genres like horror films, unless they're made by epic directors, uh, should be made so that they can see, be seen on phones. You know, I, I, I think that our film can be seen on the phone. I mean, I, the problem with our film when it comes to small screens is that we didn't have the money to do coverage. You know, and, and, and uh, if I would have had another, let's say, twice, let's say I had $200,000 instead of 100000 I probably would have done more coverage because I would have added a few more days onto the schedule. I would just put the money into more shooting days. And had, had I had that time, um, our cast was so huge when the girls were there that there was no way to cover everybody. And, and the more coverage, the smaller screen, you know. Our film, a film like our film, which is hardly a classic, it's just a pure entertainment film for, for college kids. It, it should be able to be seen on iPads and, and, and smartphones. And I think, as you know, I'm not saying anything anybody doesn't know, there are certain directors who 
um, whose films beg to be seen on big screens. You know, I, I don't. Uh, I obviously don't think this is one of those. And how was your, your post-production process? Uh, how did that go? We did it at Duart here in New York, and Duart's um, worked with me before. I did a, a short called Five Minutes Mr. Wells, which I'm very proud of, and, and uh, Five Minutes Mr. Wells toured the world for two years straight, going all over everywhere. And um, I never put it in competition, but it opened a lot of uh, short festivals all over the world. And, do I worked with that on me and, and they were, we got along so well over there that they were nice enough to give us a nice also Panavision gave us a huge break and 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 Duart gave us a huge break on 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 cost and stuff and so you know the sound department the sound mixing sound design editing uh, facilities over at Duart were awesome and they were like I said they let us finish our film there complete our film there for for at very little cost and uh, it didn't take that long. I mean, I, I, I don't really like to lock movies. I know that's a pretty common thing to say for a director that's um, inexperienced like me. And, and, you know, I just told them if they lock it, I'm just going to open it back up again. So why go through the pain, you know? So, I mean, that, that would only would have probably been one of the things that held us up for a few days, maybe two or three days, is that I would keep the film unlocked so that I could look at it and change little things here and there. It's funny because if we do make another one, there's so much more I know now that I can get away with. But we didn't have the time to do it anyway on, on this one in Tucson Woods. But uh, if I had another couple of days, like if I had like a 15-day shoot and about another $50,000 or something, I could probably, I know much, I know how to now keep the tension. I would probably, the first reel would probably be pretty even. And then the second and third reel would probably be pretty high tension. And then the fourth reel would come back down to even, and the fifth reel would just blast you with tension again. But now that I know that I can take more chances and that what I can get away with with song and the killings simultaneously, I know that I could do stalking scenes and, and stuff like that and actually get away with people singing while they're being stalked and have people take the leap of faith that, the, that someone is able to, let's say, hide behind a tree and sing for the audience without the monster even knowing that they're there. You know, I know that there's certain ridiculous, kind of absurd things I can get away with now that, that I would do and if we were to do it again. What was the process like to come up with all the character kills in the film? Yeah, it's Joe Vinciguerra and Sam Bisbee and I. We sat around in my house upstate, and I took them for a little tour of the woods at night. And I don't know if you've ever been in the woods without flashlights at night. But if it's woods like we have upstate, which have a huge canopy, so it lets very little moonlight in, um, if you turn a flashlight off, there's, you can't see anything. And even when your eyes adjust, there's only a, a few feet where, it, where it's not just dense darkness. And I wanted them to get that feeling of, of that feeling of fright, so I, I had them stand like 10 feet, 20 feet away from me, you know. And uh, I had a flashlight, and I, was, I had my flashlight on, and then I turned my flashlight off, and I went towards them. And they had no idea where I was until I came right up on them, and then I turned my light on. And it just scared the shit out of them. And, and, and that kind of like sparked this interest of, of what, you know, fear in the woods, and. You know, it just kind of helped, you know. So we went back to the house and we sat around. We had a beer and, and uh, you know, we talked about all these different ways of, 
killing. And you know, some of them were typical. I mean, we were really proud in a kind of absurd, ridiculous way of the sleeping bag, because that's never been done before, which is strange, but it's never been done, because it seems so obvious. The little uh, accordion thing in the guy's throat. We were going to actually put music to that. We wanted to have him the in and out, have that, but we tried it and it just, it was just so, it just, it wasn't even funny, it was just awful. And so we just, we had notes coming in and out when he was breathing, but very subtly in the, in the movie. But we were actually going to have like a, almost a, a kind of an absurd kind of jazzy tune come in and out while he was, <laughs> that he was creating with his own death, but it didn't work. Hey, stick around, there's more Time Capsule. Like the Machine, starring Legends of Tomorrow star Katie Lutz. How did you prepare to play first the AI expert and then eventually the AI itself? Well, I did a lot, a little bit of research on kind of just what's happening in like uh, with all the cybernetics and like artificial intelligence technology and trying to kind of find it. it was It's difficult to try to learn about it. Um, but I wanted to know what was going on and what was like the new developments and what they're studying. So I did a lot of that for the Ava character. Um, and for the machine was a little bit more difficult character-wise because it's uh, everything from posture, from my voice. I, I wanted to really make the two characters different, so I had to kind of really make that distinction, um, both physically and like just the way that the character speaks, the way that she reacts emotionally. I mean, she's a machine, and her development is completely different, and she goes through an aging process. So it, that one was a lot of work. The machine character was a lot of work. Now, do you have any training in, like, movement, or did you do any kind of special movement um, for her? Yeah. Well, I, I started as a dancer, oh, and then I was a martial artist. Oh, perfect. So, yeah, I got to use a lot of that, both, actually. A little bit of dancing, and um, some, I did, like, Muay Thai, and, uh, like, Krav Maga, and that came in handy a lot with doing the stunt work, so, yeah. yeah. great, great. And from episode 11, we look back at Reese the series. Early at one point, there was experimentation on doing web series, which are very common now, but they weren't then for a lot of reasons. And one of them was the steampunk-flavored series, Reese the Series. And I spoke to one of the actors in it at the time, Sharon Taylor. Hey, Sharon, how are you? Good, how are you? I'm fine, I'm fine. Oh, great. Uh, yeah, yeah. Hey, this, this sounds like a really exciting project. It was actually... Um Somebody on my website uh, actually uh, put the teaser trailer on there, and I go, hey, wait a minute. What, what's this? <laughs> oh, you're kidding. They put it on your website. Yeah, they can do that. My members can do that. And, uh, you know, it's, uh, you know, a creative thing, and people put their book trailers and things, and that this one really jumped out at me, and I said, hey, I... Uh, let me let me do some research here. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I'm glad you did. Yeah. It's funny because it's actually getting a lot of attention. Good. From all different um, areas of the film industry. Nice. But I'm also playing a part on Smallville right now. Oh, great. Well, I'm on set. Like the other actors are talking about it too. And like the leads of the show, they all know about it and talking about it. Even one of the producers had said to me, he's like, "Oh, I hear you're involved in this web series thing." And I was like, how did you know? He's like, oh, I heard from so-and-so, heard from so-and-so, and then I checked it out, and I saw your picture, so I know. So people are really interested, and I mean, there's, there's a lot of um, expectations, and I think everybody's ready for something like this right now. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. Amara, she sounds, um, she sounds interesting, 
But there's a, I guess, you know, in Shakespeare, I guess you could say that she kind of made her way to the throne and there's like blood on her hands, you know, because of that. That's right. She is Lady Macbeth. And it's funny you brought yeah. up Shakespeare because yeah. um, Lady Macbeth is one of the muses I use for the character. Ah. I actually, um, I'm, I, I come from a theater background. Yeah. And I, I just finished a Shakespeare play on, on the weekend, actually. Oh, which one? We did As You Like It. Oh, I love that. Yeah. Yeah, it's a fun one. Oh, yeah. It's funny. And then um, I've never actually played Lady Macbeth before, but I've done it as a monologue, and uh, and I've used that character as as a muse from Mara. It's the ambition that, like, Lady Macbeth is full of ambition and is willing to have blood on her hands mm-hmm. in order to get what she wants. So, therefore, I see the two women as being very similar. And the thing is, she uh, she institutes uh, the sect as the official religion of Elysia. So, uh, you know, I guess she kind of made a little bit of a deal with the devil a little bit too there. Definitely. I mean, in order for her to be on the throne, she had to make some very horrific choices. And uh, in doing so, yes, there's blood on her hands, but um, the choices she made were were pretty br- were pretty brutal and. The stakes are high for her, too, because she didn't realize that Reese is alive. Reese is a very big threat to her throne. I guess that's, I mean, that's, we haven't, we don't know all the details yet, but I guess, hope, I think we'll hear something about that in the first episode. Definitely, yeah. So, um, you know, we don't have to, you don't, you don't have to give anything away, but. The second episode actually is where ah. you'll actually learn more. Ah, okay, okay, interesting. So, uh, so does she possess anything that you want, uh, or her ca- your character wants, or anything like that? She doesn't actually have anything on her physical possession that I want, mm-hmm. except for the fact that her knowledge. Ah, okay. okay. What she knows. Oh, there you go. So talk about what you wear. Uh, I mean, I've seen this, you know, cool crown that you're wearing, and kind of like this, uh, almost like a, you know, kind of bustier, but what do they call those? Almost like a corset yeah, kind cor- of thing. A yeah. corset, yeah. yeah. The corset's really neat. I've never worn one before for any of the other shows I've worked on. Um, it's funny because on Stargate Atlantis, I was in a military uniform the whole time. Right, right. And then on um, on Smallville, the first, um, in the premiere episode that was on last week, I was in Army Fatigues. Yeah, there and you go. And then the episode that I shot last week, I was in Army Fatigues again. <laughs> but the episode I'm shooting next week on Smallville, I get to wear something a little more sexy. So That's good. That's, that's very exciting to me. But the um, Amara costume is probably the sexiest costume I've ever gotten to wear, so I'm I'm pretty excited about that. The corset actually helps me get into character because it keeps you very rigid and upright, mm-hmm. which um, I think works really well for a regal character. Oh yeah. It made it made um, it was challenging, <laughs> like sitting down in between takes and relaxing and hanging out and eating lunch and stuff like that, but. But uh, yeah, it's it's worth it's worth a little pain for the character. <laughs> well, you also have like a martial arts background too. Um, is Am- Amara going to have some of those qualities, perhaps? She just might. <laughs> she just might. That's quite a discipline, and you're a black belt too, and uh, that's a, that's a lot of work. Yeah, it is. I'm actually a first degree black belt now. So wow! After, <laughs> after you receive your black belt. You, every two years, you're eligible to test for another degree. Wow. Yeah, so hopefully next year I'll test for my second degree. And once I test for my second degree, I'll be a sensei. So people will have to call me Sensei Sharon. 
<laughs> That'd be nice. Hey, that's not a bad deal yeah. at all. Bow to your sensei. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> Absolutely. That's right. Yeah, that was, I believe, in the late 1990s and also early 2000s when we spoke. Really an amazing series that broke ground. I'm sorry it just didn't take off after a run on sci-fi, but it certainly wasn't because of the quality. And that is Time Capsule Episode 395. I'm Tony Tolado. Thanks so much for listening. We'll see you next month.